What you are about to hear is a lesson taught in the Baird and Born Essentials class. For more information, or to download all the resources made available in this class, click the link in the episode description or visit barrettandborn.com. And now, this week's Essentials class. And the question was, so let's say that I learn something like the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Um, I've been saying it's, it's, it's an anchor to understanding scripture. And the question was, how does knowing something as, if you will, generic as I believe in God, the Father Almighty, how does that help me if I am reading 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and I don't know understand what it's talking about? How does that help me. So I wanted to just expound on that a little bit. And this is actually one of the questions as we were talking about scripture. But this question here, this top one is what I want to focus on. It says, how should Holy Scripture be understood? He says, because Holy Scripture was given by God to the church, it should always be understood in ways that are faithful to its own plain meaning, to its entire teaching, to the church's historic interpretation. It should be translated, read, taught, and obeyed accordingly. So he mentions three, and then with some of the other questions, let me put together this, this, just five things I wanted to mention on how to help you understand Scripture when we're studying it. So when we talk about the creed, it's kind of like the, the, the root of the tree, and everything branches out from it. So we start there, and we go out. But if we're going to understand Scripture, meaning you pick up your Bible, and you're going to read Scripture, what's the best way to understand it? So the first one that he has here, and this is a term that's, that's used uh, you know, throughout the church, but uh, it's called the plain reading. And the plain reading of scripture means you don't have to be wacky when you find little phrases that seem unusual. The plain meaning of scripture means that when you read it, that the average person who picks up the Bible and reads what it says, the thing that it's saying is most likely the thing that it's saying. Okay, that, that means there's not some hidden thing underneath that only you can only figure it out if you go off into the desert and you, you, you meditate like the, like the uh, uh, early mystics did and you fast for 40 or 50 days and finally you can understand what the scripture says. It's not this uh, secretive thing that's hidden away. There's not something that it's not possible for the average person to understand. Does the scripture deepen the longer that you're in it? Yes. So if you were to say, our Father who art in heaven, that could be something that someone that is a brand new Christian can pray, and it has meaning. And in 30 years, when you pray that same phrase, it has the same exact meaning, except much deeper. But there's no hidden meaning. There's nothing that over the you know, course of time, when you hit the 33rd degree, you know, and you become uh, like, like it, uh, what, what are they called? The... Uh, the Masons, the Freemasons, that over time that you get some sort of interpretation. The scripture says what it says and it means what it means. And so you don't have to worry about that. When I was younger, I didn't realize that. And so like, I remember being uh, a kid or even a college student and I would, I would read the scriptures and I would just try to like, I wonder, I wonder what the thing is that, that this means. And, and I thought that there was some like, if I could be super spiritual, I would get this deep meaning out of it. And really what it was, was, you know, the, the authors wrote it and it means what the author says. And that's the best way to read the scripture in what we call a plain reading of scripture. Uh, the second thing um, uh, is to understanding the scripture is the entire teaching or 
uh, we can call it the whole teaching of scripture. And that means um, read a lot of it and read it often and allow the two sides of it to, to explain each other. So go ahead and read Ecclesiastes, but also make sure that you're reading Mark. And so when you read Ecclesiastes, if it says something that Mark says the exact opposite of, then you're misreading what Ecclesiastes is saying because Mark won't contradict Ecclesiastes, right? Jesus often quotes Deuteronomy and Psalms when he teaches, and so do the apostles. The apostles, uh, I, would, I think, and I don't know what the number is, but I think they probably quote the Psalms more than anything else. Um, but they quote the Psalms, they quote the, they quote the prophets, they quote... Uh, the, the law, the first five books of the Bible. And so what we're saying is that they're in agreement. So if you were to hear preaching or if you were to hear teaching or if you were to read something in Scripture and it doesn't match what the whole teaching of Scripture is, then it doesn't mean that thing, that thing you think it means. Right? So we can't find... Okay, if you read the Song of Solomon, there's a, there's a verse, Solomon's a poet, right? And he writes this, he writes this line to his beloved... And he says, although there are 60 queens and 80 concubines, you're the one I love the most. First of all, if I'm making a suggestion to guys, like that's not a line in the poem that's going to impress her. But apparently it did. Right. Although the although I've got 60 wives and 80 girlfriends, you're my favorite. Um, However. Plain reading of scripture would tell me that Solomon had, at least at that point, 60 wives and 80 concubines. But the whole reading of scripture tells me that God does not approve of that, right? And so I have to have a plain reading and I have to have a whole reading. And then the third thing is a historic reading. Um, (coughs) This is big with uh, people that you'll see on TV, like TV preachers, where they discover this thing about the Bible and they're going to make a, they got a new book and it's this new theory and it's this new understanding of the scripture. And if you can just figure out this formula and you know, this formula, there's, there's the, the, the people that are on the, like the, the Christian TV networks. Uh, if you watch them, you'll hear the word seed more often than anything else because they need your money. And so if you give them an offering, it's a seed and God can take that seed and grow it in your life. Um, and so it's always the seed. And I wrote this book about the seven seeds in scripture and the, and the seed theories. And, 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 and what, what you have to do is stop and go, has anyone in the church ever thought that before you did? If the answer is no, then you're probably wrong. And it's not a thing. Um, which is important for us to... Um, uh, in the Eastern church, they would phrase it, we should read and emulate the lives of the saints. And so find out who the, uh, the, the, the people in the church were that, if you would, would be the church celebrities. Now, if they're a celebrity celebrity, you probably don't need to read and emulate them because they probably weren't that great. But the ones that are famous for their, 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 their actions and their deeds to serve the Lord, find out about saints that were martyred. Read a history of their lives. Read the teachings right now. I'm reading the teachings of the Puritans. Read some of the writings of the church from, from years and years ago. Read some of the things that came out uh, um, in, in the first hundred years after the church. Why? Why is it important to read and to know our history and know the history of the saints and even in recent history? 
uh, preachers that you would know of, the, the Spurgeons, etc. Why is it important to, to read those things? Because when we read historically what the church has believed, then we're less likely to veer off into something the church has never believed. A friend of mine sent me a video <clears throat> this week and he said, can you help me uh, dispute this video? And it was a guy who was talking about a, just a, an understanding of sin. And his first minute was, he said, <clears throat> I think the church has gotten this wrong for 2,000 years. And the moment he said that, I was like, I, I don't, I, you're not going to be right. Because that's not, the Holy Spirit exists in the church. And the church is the risen body of Christ. Therefore, there is to be expected the, 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 the truth is going to run through it for a long period of time. It's going to be ever reforming and ever correcting. However, the, the, this truth is going to be through it. The teaching from the apostles is going to be unbroken and handed down. And he said, the church got this wrong for 2,000 years. So immediately I think he's wrong because that's not the way the church works. God didn't like wait 2,000 years for some guy on YouTube to figure out the truth. <laughs> and so that was the first thing. And then he also said... Number two, don't email me with all the verses that you think dispute me because I've already read that and I've already answered them. And I was like, okay, so now you're not going to take any correction. You're not going to look at the scriptures. You're not going to look at the whole teaching because you've already seen all the verses. And I was like, I don't even know what comes next in this video, I said to my buddy, but I was like, his premise is wrong, right? So the, 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 there's a danger of doing this uh, in, in the scripture when you go into trials and tribulations. When you enter a time of suffering, it's the most likely that you will move away from the whole teaching and the historic teaching and you'll read something that just sounds at the moment like, oh, this is really good. And then what happens is you create a doctrine that, uh, uh, of some kind of grace and help that's not in scripture. And then that's, the scripture says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. And we start thinking, God, this is what you promised. This is your promise. This is what you promised. And he didn't promise that because we're misreading what the scripture says. And so that's just a danger to do. So uh, one, two, and three, plain reading of scripture, the whole teaching of scripture, and then a historic reading of scripture. Uh, number four is a uh, pastoral uh, help. Pastoral help is where um, the, the scriptures uh, this say to us that God has given to the church pastors and teachers and apostles and has given his gifts to the church. And the purpose of that is so that we would have spiritual guidance in community. And to have pastoral help is because a pastor can come alongside you separate from your temptations and your anxieties and your desires and can say to you, hold on a second, let's not read it like that. Let's, let's read it like this. Or this is, this is the decision, and, and Pastor, I read this thing, and it's, it was Isaiah, and it said, whom shall I send? And I just can't get that off my mind. And I, maybe he's sending me, and I'm going to pack up my stuff, and I'm moving to Mongolia. And the pastor go, hold, hold, hold on a second. Don't read that passage to think that you have to move to Mongolia right now, right? Because we need guidance by someone who is spiritual, and we have been given under shepherds and bishops to, to watch over and to help us. So if you're going to make a life decision or you need help and you're, and you're reading scripture, uh, one thing that is important to have is a pastoral help that can come alongside you and say, uh, uh, in, in the church, there's a term, it's, 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 uh, it's called economia. And economia is, it's where we get the word economy. And it's, this may be good for you and it may not be good for someone else. And so with the care of the church, a pastor might lead you to do something. 
A buddy of mine went to church one day and he said, uh, Pastor, here's my problem. Here's the thing I'm struggling with and I don't know why I'm struggling with this thing. And the pastor said, I don't think you're generous enough. And he said, what does that have to do with anything? Because it was more about his emotions. Like I'm emotionally like grumpy and irritable. And so the pastor said, I don't think you're generous enough. Here's what I want you to do. They had this box in the back of their church and it was like the poor box where you could just, in addition to your offerings or whatever, you could put in there and went directly to feeding the poor. He said, every time that you walk out of the church, you have to put in something in that box. That's going to be a, a rule of life for you. You have to put it in there. And he said, I'm asking you about being grumpy. Why am I giving to the poor? And the pastor walked him backwards and said, because you're not generous, you don't see people with compassion. If you don't see people with compassion, you've got a bad attitude towards people. And so the pastor was able to guide him in understanding the scriptures a little bit better so that he could do what he needed to do. It was the, his personal economy. You may not need that. You may not need that rule in your life that every time you pass the poor box, you put it in. You may need something else. You may need a fasting rule or a prayer rule or something like that. But the pastor is able to guide him in the thing that was going to benefit him for his own spiritual formation. And the last thing is your conscience. Now, Jimmy Cricket says, always let your conscience be your guide. I will say, for the most part, let your conscience be your guide. Not always. That God gave us a conscience. It's, it's, C.S. Lewis said that in our hearts, every person has both awe and dread. Awe because we know there's something bigger than us, and dread because we know that we're accountable to it. Everyone has that in their hearts. There's, 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 there's an awe. And even in the world that doesn't believe in God, um, we use the word universe a lot. That's like the kind of the new agey way of talking about God these days. If you want to talk about God, you say like, boy, the universe just really, the universe didn't do anything. Universe is matter. God did that. And so even those people recognize they have an awe of a grandeur, something that is great. And so God has given to that uh, to us in our heart. Now, if you have a seared conscience, meaning like you've sinned so much that your conscience is so seared that nothing is bad, then you can't trust your conscience. And that's why it's only one of five. Like you can't trust your conscience if it's seared because there are times where I, it, when, if my, my sons are really, really hot in battle and I'll be like, is this the right decision to make? Yeah. And I'm like, whoa, you are so angry right now that you're willing to, you have no conscience that checking you. You know, and so don't always do that. And also, if you're a very anxious, I'm a very anxious person, so I can't really trust my conscience because my conscience tells me everything I do is wrong. And so I, I've got to be able to, I got to be careful of that. So these are all the ingredients, but plain reading of scripture, the whole reading of scripture, historic reading of scripture, pastoral help, and your conscience. And when you put all those things together as you read the scripture, this will help you uh, uh, interpret it, Okay. And so the, how does the scripture, the Holy Spirit, use it in our life? These are the things it does. It teaches us, it rebukes us, it corrects us, it trains us in righteousness that God desires. A prayerful study of the scripture forms me for life in Christ and the service of God and my neighbor. This is important because the church and the worship and the Bible is not primarily a pep talk. It's not primarily a thing that's supposed to make you feel good on a rainy day. Now, the scripture will give you peace and joy. That, that, that's what it intends to do. But sometimes the best way to have peace when you have cancer is to take out the cancer, right? And so the scriptures doesn't, the scripture don't, they don't come along and they don't say, hey, you're doing well, man, you got it. It's, it's, it, 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 you got it. Jesus died for a reason. 
He didn't come and just say, hey, come on, guys, it's all in your head. You know, just do better. Right? He actually had to die, which means there's something significantly wrong with sin uh, that has infected all of us. And so the scripture is meant to teach us, to rebuke us, and correct us, and train us. And so when you approach scripture, you have to approach it with a meekness of heart that knows this is going to teach me something, but it's also going to rebuke me. And it's also going to correct me. It's also meant to change me. So you got to take the good and take the bad and you know the rest. All right? Uh, And that's what the Holy Scripture is for. So let's go on to, let's see if I can get this to work. Uh, This is the creed. We'll start talking about this and we're just going to start chipping away at this uh, for the next handful of weeks uh, and and talk about it and look at some scriptures. So the creed says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. I believe in the... Oh, where it is. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, Holy Apostolic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. We'll break these down one at a time. It's broken up into the Father the Son, the Spirit, and then basically the last things or the, the end time, uh, uh, how the, the consummation of the world will go. And so that's what the creed. So let's start here with this first section, uh, I believe in God. In Deuteronomy, I want to read this to you. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 says this. Listen, listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. I said it just a minute ago. We don't believe in a, an impersonal. We don't believe in a distant. And we don't believe in a force like God. We believe in a personal God. Our God is a triune God. That means he is three God. That was heresy. He is one God. <laughs> he is one God with three persons. We can neither divide them nor confuse them. That means the Father is not the Son and the Son is not the Spirit, nor is the Spirit a different God from the Father. The Father is God, the Lord. The Son is God, the Lord. And the Spirit is God, the Lord. And the three of them are one, singular. There is no good analogy for the Trinity. I can give you the egg analogy. I can give you the water analogy. None of them are good because all of them at their heart, if I were to say to you, this is what the Trinity is like, it would be heretical because it's not what the Trinity is like. The Trinity is, if I can, uh, if I can use this grammatically incorrect, it is a supremely, singularly unique thing. It's its own. It's other. There is nothing. Now, there are mirrors and images and, and things to, to, to see it, but the Trinity is itself itself. It's unique. And so when God says, there, when we say that God is one, it means a few things. It means, number one, that the, the, that the Godhead is one, but it also means that there's only one. There are not other gods. There are not competing gods. We don't, we don't say, well, you worship this God and they worship that God. There is no other gods. Paul even says, we know that, the, he says, we know the, the reality about idols. They're, they're nothing. There, there are no other gods. There's only the one. But also, when we say that our God is one, we say, I believe in God. We're saying it's the only real being that there is. In our Western culture, we have this false idea that like there's good versus evil or God versus Satan. Right? So it's God and he fights Satan. If you go on Facebook, I'm sure you could find a picture of Jesus arm wrestling the devil because I've seen that one. 
right? Um, that's not the way it works. There is only one singular power in existence, and it is God. Everything else exists within his power and purview at his permission and at his allowance. So there is no battle of good versus evil. You and I are battling good versus evil, but God has no competition. God has no one that he's battling. God, There's no opportunity for Satan to rise up against God because he exists within God's power within God's purview. So our God is one in that the Trinity is really one. Our God is one as in that there is only one of them. And our God is one in that all things are within his sovereignty. The prophets say that whether it's the rising up or the tearing down, it's God who did it. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away, Job said. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So everything that happens, whether it is to joy or to suffering, we can respond, blessed be the name of the Lord, because he controls all things, he sees all things, he knows all things, and he, as Romans tells us, will make all things work together for good to them who love him. And so that is what we mean when we say that our God is one and that he's singular. The scriptures tells us about the character of God. It says that God is both loving and holy. God mercifully redeems fallen creation while righteously opposing all sin and evil. The Lord Jesus Christ is the fullest revelation of God's holy love. So I said to you that all analogies of the Trinity are bad. So let me give you my best one. And someone else who came in the class would say, no, that one is bad as well. But this is the best way when I try to picture and I see the Trinity, this is how uh, best that I describe it here. The Father is the head, the speaker. And when I say head, I don't mean like head, like there's one up here, then number two, then the third one. I mean, he's the head, he's the speaker. The word that proceeds out of the mouth is Christ, the Son, and the breath that carries it is the Spirit of God. So if you were to stand here today and you were to close your eyes and I were to talk, you would not see me, but you would hear me, right? If you were to stand in front of me and plug your ears and close your eyes and I spoke, you would feel my breath. You would feel it, but you wouldn't see it and you wouldn't hear it. Knowing the Trinity is a combination of all three of these things. It is when we hear the word, that's Christ. When we see and understand it, have our eyes opened, we're seeing the Father, right? And the experience the thing that binds us to us and causes us to know it deep in our hearts and believe it, that's the spirit that we feel. Now, if you notice, when the, Jesus spoke, the disciples, they never believed, right? Like, if you read the Gospels and you see the way the disciples acted and then you were to uh, listen to the epistles, you would say, those guys did not write that. Like, these guys seemingly were incompetent. They never believed anything. They were fighting with each other. How did they write that? And that's because the word without the spirit, nothing happens. Christ is the word. And when he sends the spirit, Christ, the word, and God, the spirit combine. And all of a sudden these men are transformed. These men and these women uh, that are at Pentecost are completely transformed because as Joel tells us, the spirit is poured out and people dream dreams and they understand and they can speak and they can prophesy because the spirit is inside of you that knows. So you hear Christ, but you know God through his spirit. So anytime that you're in church and uh, the pastor says something, 
okay? And that goes deep into your heart and you go, aha. Or you go, yes, I love that. Or you go, oh man, I need to change that. What you heard was Christ. But that thing that's happening inside of you, that's the spirit. Okay? So if you hear the words of Christ and the teachings of Christ and there is no desire to turn away from sin and there's no desire to chase after knowledge of God and have a hunger and thirst for righteousness, that then is a sign that there's no spirit, right? So what we have to be doing is earnestly looking for the fruit of the spirit in our lives. That's why Peter says uh, that we should uh, be uh, working out our own salvation with fear and trembling. We ought to be searching and seeing is the spirit there. Is, 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 are we hearing the words of God and it's transforming us and turning us and changing us? That's evidence of the Spirit. So when we say uh, that, that um, uh, God is one, uh, we're saying that he is one in three. And we are saying that we, he speaks to us. We hear him through Jesus and we know him through the Spirit. And this is important here, that this last part. God is both loving and holy. We, we, we naturally default to God is justice and anger. That's what we default to when we think of God. We think of him as he defaults to anger and he maybe possibly, if we work hard enough, we can provoke him to have some mercy. Please God have some mercy, right? It's, it's the exact opposite. God actually is long suffering and merciful and loving. And at the slightest, like, like a balloon at the slightest pinprick, just it all comes out but it takes provoking to get him to anger. Humans are the opposite, where the apostle tells us, you should try to provoke one another to love. Like, if after a while you can maybe stir each other up and beg each other and plead with each other, like, hey guys, we should love each other. He says, the scripture tells us that God is the exact opposite. His natural uh, self is to be pouring out mercies. And it is only when he is provoked for the sake of opposing sin and evil that we see the wrath of God come out. And so the nature of, when we say that, that we believe in God, this is the nature of the God that we believe in. He's, uh, he's, 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 a, he's a God who is three in one, uh, one in three, not to be divided or confused. He is the only one. He is the supreme one. He is the sovereign one. And also he is a loving one. If you remember the story of uh, 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 Moses, where Moses said, I want to see you, right? Moses says, I want to see you. And God says, uh, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hide you and I'm going to walk past you. And he says, you'll see my, my, my hind part. And so the Bible says that he puts him, he blocks him with his hand and he walks. And when God walks past Moses, he doesn't say, uh, I am God, the just, I am God, the righteous, I am God, the powerful. He walks past Moses and he says, it's me, the merciful one, the forgiving one. Like that's how he describes himself as I am he who is merciful and forgiving and long suffering. He says that my mercy will go to a thousand generations. He says, I will not. And then only when he's at the bottom of that passage, does he say that I will not let the guilty go free, but I will bring judgment on the third and the fourth generation. For some reason, our eyes go straight down to that I'm going to judge the third and fourth generation. And we skip the fact that he says, but my grace is overwhelming to go down to the thousandth generation, right? That's his natural state of being, that God is overwhelming and swallowing up uh, sin because he is merciful. Remember this, 
we don't die and get condemned in our sins because we're a sinner. This is important. What's the, what's the consequence of you and I being a sinner? The consequence of you and I being a sinner is that God became man and died for us. That's the consequence of you and I being a sinner. If we continue in our sin, in rebellion, and reject the grace of God, that's where we find condemnation. So never feel like, oh, I have so much sin. I have so much sin. God's like, I know that you have so much sin. That's why I sent my son. Or I have so much guilt. Or I have so, I have so much past. God says, I know you have so much sin. That's why I sent my son. And so when we receive the son, when we receive his grace, that's when we receive God's forgiveness and his mercy, which is overwhelming. And so that is why he teaches us um, uh, this. Next week, we are going to talk about the second portion of the creed, which is, uh, I believe in God. The second part is the Father Almighty. What does it mean that God is our Father? And what does it mean that God is Almighty? And what does it mean that God is the creator of heaven and earth? So we'll do that next week, and then we'll move on to who is the Son, and then who is the Spirit, and we'll continue on through that. Let us say, let's see if I can get through this here, and we'll finish off with the, the Lord's Prayer.